turn with me, if you will, to that passage that we read earlier, the beginning, that majestic, wonderful beginning of uh, John's Gospel. And of course, it makes us think of the creation, and that's uh, the Apostle's intention when he writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and immediately we're taken back to Genesis 1 and verse 1, because John wants to indicate that what he's speaking about is a new creation. There's the old creation, and here is a new beginning and a new creation. And he's deliberately bringing it out. He brings it out all the time throughout his gospel. He's harking back to the old creation, and he's saying it's now fulfilled in the glorious new creation brought about by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, when God first made man, when he first made Adam and Eve, he dwelt with them. You remember that passage? You think about uh, chapter 3 of uh, Genesis, and he dwelt with them. He walked with them. He walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. He spoke to Adam uh, just as naturally as we speak to one another. It was the Son of God. There, the second person of the Trinity, speaking in this wonderful appearance before Adam. And then, of course, we know the terrible story of Genesis 3, that man sinned and a barrier was erected. And God had to, here's a word we've learned in recent years, had to self-isolate. God had to self-isolate himself in order not to be contaminated with the sin of man. And in order also to protect Adam and Eve, who as sinners would have been burnt up by his holiness. So it was for mutual protection, if you like, that the Lord God had to withdraw his fellowship because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet, a loving God has created man in his own image in order to have fellowship with him. God didn't need anything. God was self-existent in all eternity. He didn't need to create, but he wanted to create. God was all loving. He is love. God the Father loved the Son. God the Son loved the Father. God the Father and the Son loved the Holy Spirit. God is love. He didn't need anything extra to love, but he chose to create human beings in his own image so that he could love them and so that they could love him in return, so that they could have this loving fellowship. That was God's intention in creating Adam and Eve and knowing all the, those who would flow from them. And so he wasn't about to have his plan frustrated by the sin of man. So his longing always was to get back to the situation where he could have fellowship with man and speak with them. And of course you know the history. To uh, show his intention to restore this relationship, let's leap onwards to Moses. God commanded Moses to go and lead out a special people from Egypt. And when he'd led them out and said, you are my special people, I'm going to have a a special arrangement with you, a special covenant or testament. We call it the Old Testament because there's a better one now. He 
He said, I'm going to have this arrangement with you. And he commanded various things from the mountain at Sinai, did he? didn't he? And God commanded Moses to construct a tabernacle. Tabernacle is just a posh word for tent. To construct a tabernacle or tent. And there, hidden from the sinful gaze of all except the high priest, once a year, God revealed himself to man once again in what was called the Shekinah glory. Now that word Shekinah is a Hebrew word, but it doesn't actually appear in the Bible. It's a word that the ancient Israelites obviously used and the Jews used, and it means dwelling. God, who had had to withdraw himself when sin came into the world, shows his ultimate intentions. When he makes the people, creates a people for himself, ancient Israel. And then he says, build a tent. I have to be very careful because you were sinners and I am holy. But in that tent, I will reveal myself. I will show my ultimate purposes will not be frustrated. And I will indicate what I intend to do in the future. And to the high priest, once a year, he'll be able to go in there and he will see the Shekinah glory hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, much later, the same glorious representation of the Lord's presence manifested itself in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's temple. There was the Shekinah glory, the dwelling presence of God, visible to the high priest. But then, of course, you know the history of Israel. And you know their terrible disobedience. And you know how God's patience was tried and tested time and time again until it was finally broken. And uh, you know your Bibles well. You remember how the prophet Ezekiel, whose, whose book of the Bible is, has Ezekiel as their favorite book? I didn't think so. One of the longest books in the Bible, isn't it? When's the last time you've read through Ezekiel? Well, you need a little help to read through it, I must admit. But there's a tremendous passage, a very, very awesome passage in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel pictures the departure of the Shekinah glory from the temple. And he, he shows the glory moving and going from the temple. Shortly before, God allowed the Babylonians, you remember, to come in and destroy the temple and allowed his own people to be taken into exile. But the glory had departed. The literal glory, the Shekinah glory, the indication that God wanted to dwell with his people once again. That glory had departed, according to the prophet Ezekiel. And though, of course, you know the story, some of the exiles eventually returned, and the temple was rebuilt it was only a fairly miserable replica of what had originally been built by Solomon. And the fact of the matter was that in this new temple that was built by the exiles, the Shekinah glory never appeared. It was absent. This indication of the Lord's presence and dwelling was not present in the rebuilt temple. In fact, for nearly 600 years, 
God did not dwell visibly with his people. And that brings us to Christmas. Because then was born Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us again. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? You see, it all adds up. The whole story makes sense. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. Christ was born at Bethlehem. What do we read in Luke chapter 2? We'll read it again this Christmas time. The glory of the Lord shone around. The angels announced the return of the presence of of Almighty God to dwell amongst his people once again who has been missing all of these centuries. That's what the story is. Or as our passage puts it in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling, literally, he tabernacled among us. You know, John doesn't want anybody to miss these connections that I'm giving you here this morning. God dwelt in a tent. He tabernacled among us. Oh, that reminds us of the Old Testament tabernacle, where God was revealed, where he dwelt. Of course, that's what you're meant to understand. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory. <laughs> in case we didn't, we thought of some other kind of glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Could it be made plainer? Could it be made more obvious what John is saying here? Yes, it's all about a new creation. In the beginning, something incredible is happening here. He tabernacles among us. He lived in a tent among us. Everything about the old tabernacle that Moses constructed is just a foreshadowing of the new tabernacle. The Lord Jesus Christ come in the flesh. The Lord God incarnate, in flesh, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. All of the law is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus and all that he has done. It's the whole purpose of the law of the Old Testament. We're not under the law anymore, thank God. But the law of the Old Testament is so wonderful for us to read and learn from because it foreshadows everything. Everything about the law, all its commandments, all its ceremonies, everything, even the civil regulations, all speak of Christ. It's a wonderful treasure trove. All foreshadows is Christ, but one of the most important things is the tabernacle foreshadowing Jesus come in the flesh. Both the apostles Paul and Peter refer to the human body as a tent. And uh, if God dwelt symbolically in the old tabernacle, how much more does he live in reality in the new? The old tabernacle was made from dead animal skin. But the new tabernacle from living human flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Or as Paul puts it, for in Christ 
all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So much here, isn't there? I mean, we could just look at this and spend all our time just on this. But I want to just very simply recognize just three things uh, in, in five little words uh, in the middle of verse 14. We've already this verse is burnt, read this verse, but verse 14, here it is. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And here are the words I want us to concentrate on. We have seen his glory. And I want to, th th these words struck me in particular. I thought, well, lots of questions I want to ask about this. But there it is. We have seen his glory. Three points. Three-point sermon. Yes, there was a long introduction. Well, it was, but there you are. Three points. Oh, well, I've got three points here this morning. And the first point is this. A favoured people. A favoured people. We. Not everybody. We have seen his glory. So the question is, who does John mean by we? We have seen his glory. Many, of course, saw Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, as he grew up, born in squalid circumstances, just a working class family there in the north in Galilee. But the vast majority of those who lived in what Matthew called the Galilee of the Gentiles, that's how it was known, Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Because not many real uh, uh, religious and pious Jews lived up there. And there were lots of foreigners up there. You see, up there in the north. And, and the posh people down south in Judah, they, they sneered at anybody who actually wanted to live up there in Galilee. Why would you want to live up there, so far away from the temple anyway? And it was called Galilee of the Gentiles, which was a bit of an insult. But many, in fact, the vast majority of those living in Galilee of the Gentiles didn't see Jesus' glory. We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. But they didn't. They saw Jesus in the flesh. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I wish I'd been there. I wish I'd seen Jesus. But there'd been no point. There was nothing special about his appearance. We're told that in the scriptures. It wouldn't have made any difference to us if all we'd seen was the outward flesh. And uh, what do we read in verse 10 of John 1? He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So there they are in this very worldly setting, Galilee of the Gentiles. The vast majority had no idea who he truly was. But then, even when he went down to Judah, down south to Jerusalem, the same was true there. The Jews were supposedly looking out for the Messiah to come. But look at verse 11, the following verse. Verse 11 says, he came to that which was his own. He says the people in the world up there in Galilee, they didn't recognize him. But even when he came down south, he came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. So he said, you might have expected up in Galilee no one will be looking out for the Messiah or looking out for him will recognize who it was. But you might have thought when he came down south that would have made a difference. But apparently it didn't. In vain for them, all Jesus' miraculous words and works 
didn't mean a thing to so many of them. But, look at these wonderful verses, 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him. What does that mean? Well, John tells us. Receiving Christ, what does it mean? To, to all who did receive him. In other words, to those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent. Don't become a Christian just because you belong in a Christian nation or have a Christian parent or grandparent or something like that. Not of natural descent, not of human decision, not even ultimately up to you. You can't just say, oh, I think I'll be a Christian today. Or a husband's will, controlled by somebody else. You better do this. No. Born of God. That's what a Christian is, isn't it? Somebody who's born of God. Born from above. Born again. That's what we say, isn't it? We're born physically, born naturally. But we have to be born spiritually. Born from above. That's the question. Who are the we? Who are this favoured people? We have seen his glory. Who are the people who have been born of God? People who have been born of God. From the beginning there were a, a few of people who, whose eyes were opened. We, we learn from the accounts of the, of the birth, uh, some shepherds. Very significant that he chose shepherds incidentally, looking after their sheep. You know, God always led people who had had shepherd training. You know, Moses was called to bring about the old covenant when he was looking after his sheep. Do you remember that? And the burning bush? The revelation of God in the burning bush when he's looking after his sheep? Well, the new covenant is being announced by the angels in the same way. To shepherds. who come and see the fulfillment of the prophecy of the bush in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful shepherds, not like the unfaithful shepherds of Israel, faithful shepherds who we're told went around and told everybody about the birth of the Lord Jesus because they believed. And, and Magi, who may have came up, come up to two years later, as we've all been told, but nonetheless they came to see the infant Jesus and they believed them. Who do they represent? Well, they've come from the East. <laughs> Not even people who lived up in Galilee. They, they, some mysterious people from the East. Total Gentiles and pagans. Astrologer types. Goodness gracious, what did they believe? Well, they came and they saw and they believed he was the Messiah. They knew something. And they believed. See, even in these accounts of the, of the birth of Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel is being proclaimed here. The shepherds are significant. Faithful Israelites telling people the gospel. Even Gentiles are included from the furthest possible reaches of the known world. It's all about the reach of the gospel now. An amazing, amazing thing. And it's the same today. Some see Jesus' glory, others don't. Some see in the manger God incarnate, but many just a human baby. Just a a story which has some sentimental attraction at Christmas time. And that's all it means. What makes the difference? Spiritual enlightenment. Spiritual discernment. 
Only when God enlightens our hearts can we see who Jesus is. Otherwise, it's just a pretty story. No more meaningful than Father Christmas. That's how most people think. That's how they thought in the day when Jesus was born. That's how they think now. Do you remember when um, Simon Peter first announced that Jesus was the Christ? Halfway through Jesus' ministry. Shortly before he began his great journey down to Jerusalem and the cross. And uh, Simon Peter, as the spokesman of the other disciples, said that Jesus, I believe, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember what Jesus says. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You can only see through the work of God and his revealing presence in your life. Don't shake your head in wonder that your friends and relations don't believe in Jesus. The wonder is that you do. Because God has spoken to you by his spirit. Otherwise, you'd be no different from everybody else, would you? Truly a favoured people. You have to ask the question, are you one of God's favoured people? Have you recognised who Jesus is? Have you seen his glory? In the old tabernacle, as we said, the high priest alone could see God's glory, and that only once a year. But now everybody is invited. That's the glorious freedom of the gospel, of the New Testament gospel. It's not exclusive to any one people, but to all of us, regardless of our race or social standing or gender or whatever it may be. Everyone, if you're a human being, you're invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ on the same basis as everybody else. That's the great thing about it, isn't it? Nothing else in life is like that. Nothing else in life is like that. Everything else in life is exclusive. Exclude somebody. And maybe you. But the gospel is all and utterly inclusive for everybody. Praise God for that. A favoured people. I hope you're one of the favoured people. Here's the second thing we must rush on. The second thing. Remember three points. This, this, if we've done the first, these are, these are even shorter. You'll get home for lunch, I promise you. The second thing is, we, we sit a favoured people in these five words, and now a remarkable experience. We are favoured people. We have seen, here's the, the favoured, uh, uh, here's the remarkable experience, rather. Uh, you may say, well, you know, we have seen. What does that mean? How, how can we see Jesus. He lived all these years ago, uh, let alone his glory. How, how is this possible? Um, and of course, we have to understand that the kind of seeing here is not physical seeing. That's not what's meant. We've already said that many saw Christ in the flesh who were none the better for it. So it obviously doesn't mean physical seeing. Many saw Jesus and crucified him. Of course it doesn't mean physical seeing. Can't do, can it? But his true disciples then saw his glory in exactly the same way 
let his true disciples see his glory today. And how is that? And the answer is very simple. By faith. We see by faith. The shepherds and the magi saw beyond a mere and physically unremarkable human child. Why? Because as we've already said, because they believed the promises of Scripture. They saw riches in the poverty. They saw honour in the disgrace. They saw glory in the shame. They saw what others didn't. And that's the question again we have to ask. Do you see that? We're talking about a remarkable experience. I love the um, book of Job in the Old Testament. It's such a comfort to those who suffer. But um, first, first sermon I ever preached many, many years ago was on Job 42, verses 5 to 6, which is the claim of Job, where he says right at the end of that book, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And what struck me all those years ago, when I was a very young Christian, I thought that was so powerful because it described my own experience. Having, all back in those days, you, you even had scripture lessons in school. So I knew the stories. I'd sung the hymns in assembly. Can you imagine doing that today? So I knew the stories. I'd heard of Jesus by the hearing of the ear, as the old A.V. says. But I hadn't seen him. And when I saw the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, who he was and what he'd done, I thought, this all makes sense. Suddenly everything snapped into place. Ah, oh, this. Oh, that means that. Oh, that means that. That's why that's there. It all made sense in the scripture. Oh, I had a thousand questions. But all the important things just snapped into place. I'd heard of him, but now I'd seen him. And that demanded a response. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, says Job. That's the trick. That's how you know somebody has seen Jesus by faith, is that they respond. They respond in a way that changes their life. They have this amazing experience. We're talking about a profound spiritual experience that must be life-changing. Otherwise, it's not the evidence of faith. True faith that sees. So there's the remarkable experience. We have seen. Let's come to the third point. We have seen his glory. So the third point is an amazing sight. A favoured people, a remarkable experience, and then lastly, an amazing sight. We have seen his glory. And how much better, how much better is the glory of Christ than the glory of Moses? Now, this is the point that um, John makes here. Uh, if you look at verse 17, uh, 
we read, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or even go back to verse 16. Out of his fullness we have all received grace. And I like this translation. I'm reading from the NIV, but it's, I think it's a good translation. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. In place of grace already given. So yes, the Old Testament was of course gracious. God was saving a people for himself. The law was gracious. But we've now received grace, infinitely grace. Grace in place of grace already given. We no longer need the grace of the old covenant. Indeed, it never does us any good anyway. We always needed to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and not just obey the law, because we couldn't be saved that way anyway, because we're sinners. But we've, seen, we've received grace in place of grace. That's why he says in verse 17, for the law, he's not being disparaging about the law. He says the law was given through Moses, but hey, it pales into insignificance when you realize that grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. That's a glorious thing. And you see that um, grace and truth. Go back to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Those words are repeated. It is the fullness of grace and truth that is at the root of the glory of the Incarnation. What is the nature of the glory of the Incarnation? It's this fullness of grace and truth. How full of grace is the Son of God to lay aside heaven and take upon himself our human nature? You've heard people dwell on this many, many times, so I won't. You know what grace means, don't you? It means undeserved favor. Why, why would God do this for us? How full of grace is the Son of God to lay aside heaven and take upon himself our human nature? How full of grace is he to come to die in the place of sinners? Sinners like us. How full of grace is the Son of God that he might desire to come and redeem and restore us. How full of grace is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to want to have fellowship with us as he did in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, even after we had sinned and torn ourselves away from that relationship. How gracious is the Son of God to want to do all of these things, to have fellowship with us here on earth once again. And then, of course, in glory itself forevermore. Full of grace seems too weak a phrase, doesn't it? But that's not all. 
in the glory of the incarnation, we see that Jesus is full of truth. The glory is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the true Lamb of God. All those countless sacrifices made in the Old Testament, all pointing forward to the true Lamb of God, fulfilling the once and for all, so that they're no longer required. He is the true scapegoat. Do you remember the story of the two goats? One is slaughtered, and the other has the sins of the people laid upon the other goat, and he's banished into the wilderness. A picture of the sins of God's people being taken away and never seen again. The scapegoat, the escaping goat, the scapegoat. Jesus is our scapegoat, the true scapegoat. He takes the blame, and we go free. He is the true one. He is the true fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets who speak only ultimately of Christ. He is true to all his claims, to all his promises, and to all his warnings. And he's going to be true to his divine mission until every one of his favoured people is brought home to glory. I am the truth, said Jesus. And truer words were never spoken. So what an event we celebrate at Christmas time, don't we? When we begin to think about all these things and God's goodness towards us. God coming into the world as one of us to save us, to save all who will receive him by faith, his favoured people, those upon whom his favour rests, says the scripture. Does his favour rest on you? Are you one of his favoured people? Are you one of the we who have seen his glory? Can you say along with all other Christians here, I have seen his glory. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we bless you for your word. We thank you for its fullness. We thank you for this amazing beginning to John's Gospel, which uh, shows us so many paths that we might explore and shows us so many routes to understanding. We pray, our Father, that our trust may be entirely upon your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at this Christmas season. Lord God, if we have not yet seen his glory, uh, we pray, our Lord God, that we might not let this Christmas pass without knowing that he is our Saviour and Lord. So bless us and help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.